I invite you to turn to the back of your Bibles this morning, to the book of 1 John, where we'll be reading from chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death unto life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we will receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray together. Lord, on the brink of eternity, friendships matter a lot. If we could walk the line with death a few steps away, oh, how we would cherish every relationship, how we would nurture it, how we would be kind, how we would love. But life has the illusion of self-sufficiency and stability about it, and so we neglect them. 
And my prayer today is that this message and these sweet songs that have been sung downtown and here would minister to our hearts a longing and a resolve and a joyful expectation of friendships, loving relationships at different levels of intimacy that are an honor to you and satisfying to our souls and a means of modeling to the world what they are missing outside Christ. So I invite you to come and help me. In Jesus' name, amen. What should a pastor say now to help a larger church like this to grow in our biblical life together? Because one of the things that is facing us uh, as we contemplate treasuring Christ together, which I unfolded last week, is increased multiplication. Uh, we're two campuses now. We, we will be three probably someday. And, and then churches being planted and congregations being formed. And how does life together in an authentic, biblical Christ-exalting, loving, God-centered way happen in a larger church? What can I say that would be significant and that would help us? And the uh, problem is that there are people in this church who will never see, let alone meet, the other people in this church. And that's not Surprising, it's not new, and it's not unbiblical. We all remember, don't we, that in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, 3,000 people in one day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, were added to the church in Jerusalem. Chapter 4, verse 4, 5,000 more men are added, not to mention women and children. You now have a church of eight to 15,000 people. They did not all know each other in Jerusalem, and they were scrambling to discover how to be church. Well, here's one of the things they did. Chapter 2, verse 42 of Acts. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers, and day by day, attending the temple together... And breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts. So they were finding each other in large groups in the temple, and they were finding each other in smaller fellowship groups in their homes. It's really naive for anybody to come along and say, as the restorationist movement in Britain and elsewhere tends to say, the early church was all house churches. The early church was all small. They don't know what they're talking about. We simply don't know how they organized it. What we read is every day they went to the temple courts and every day they met in homes. I have no idea how the thing was organized. The Bible leaves wide open how to structure churches in groupings. What it gives us is impulses and, and principles and longings and desires and relationships. And we have to find ways to do it. 
The key to life together, life together, evidently, was those home cells, home small groups, home gatherings, where they ate together, devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, prayed together. And there was that large gathering that we love so much, which is fully biblical and fully a blessing Even when you don't know people, like a battalion ready to move into battle, 10,000 soldiers gathered on the field just before the battle to hear the commander-in-chief give the rallying challenge and cry. Roar goes up. They know their platoon. They're high-fiving, and they don't know 9,000 names in this battalion, and they love what they're involved in and are about to give their lives for. These events, you don't know 90 the, 90% of the people in this room, you don't know the people in that room downtown, are precious, powerful, God-willed events. And then there's a third thing, besides the smaller things, the big thing. In all of that kind of moving around, ministry and worship and hanging out and bumping into one another, and friendships are born. Spontaneous, unplanned friendships are born. And they last a lifetime. I can remember... 1974, coming to Minnesota for the first time. Taught at Bethel College for six years. One day down in room A203, I think it was. I was finishing a class and a 28-year-old guy walked in and introduced himself to me and invited me to church. I didn't know where to go to church in the Twin Cities when I got here in 1974. We'd been bouncing around, and I went to his church. He happened to be an associate pastor there, and a friendship was born that lasts deeply, preciously to this day. His name's David Livingston. Two years later, I can remember a class on First Peter, First John, Romans. There's a young guy with hair down on his shoulders, and he was smart. And he was a good student, and he was humble. And I could see pastor written all over this guy. We sent him off to seminary in California. And I just thought about him all the time when God called me to this church. And I wrote him a letter. I said, how about if you come work with me? Because something had been born between us. His name is Tom Steller. We've been together for 23 years. These kind of relationships in my life are powerful and precious, and I want them to happen for you, Northwestern students and Bethel students and others. Seminal times for making lifetime connections. You know, you students who are here uh, should not think that when we talk about small groups or church life, that that's, that's something you discover about four years from now. Maybe you get married, maybe you start having kids, and then you've got to take seriously structural life. But right now, you can just kind of be a freewheeling, moving around. Don't, don't think that way. There are a lot of you in this room. Rather think, <laughs> I can remember. It took me till tw age 23 to learn this. 
too late. But I learned it in seminary where I heard messages and began to hear teaching on small groups and one another ministry. And I had avoided all that in college. I never had a single thing like that in college. By the time I left seminary in 1970, um, no, yes, 71, then I had five, I was in five small groups. I was in a group, the Galilean Sunday school class with couples. I was in a, a guy's group. I was in a group of seniors, just three of us, with Marcia Sayer. And I can't remember who the other guy was, just to pray about our future. And I was in an apprenticeship-type group with Ray Ortland, the pastor of Lake Avenue Church. They really filled up my week. I didn't regret any of those small group experiences because of what God was doing in my life through those other people. So just a word to, to those of you who are in college that you not neglect these formative years. So I ask again, what should I say? Another problem is that in this room and in that room downtown, there are four kinds of people, at least. One kind is over on this extreme of the continuum, and this person says, I don't have any close personal relationships, and I don't need any, thank you, and I don't want any. And over at this end of the spectrum, there's another kind of person who says, I really need relationships, and you owe me one, and it's your problem that I don't have any. Now, those are two extremes. The extreme of proud self-sufficiency and the extreme of proud self-pity. What they both lack is the discovery of humble love. They need to move away from those extremes toward each other and find each other in the middle. They need to put down loveless pride, which over here expresses itself in boasting and self-sufficiency, and over here expresses itself in blaming and self-pity. Are you in either of those extremes? I think most of you are probably closer to the center, but I mentioned the extremes just in case you might recognize yourself over there and need to be called in. Both are proud. They, the pride looks very different. We usually have a sense in our mind of what a proud person looks like. Pride people are not detectable by one mode. This self-pitying, crying, whining, blaming person doesn't look as proud as this person, but there's just as much pride underneath that as there is underneath this. And they need to lay down the pride and move toward each other. There are two other kinds of people. They're people who have recognized by grace their brokenness and their pride and sinfulness and are moving away from those extremes toward each other. Here's one kind. This person says, I don't naturally look for close relationships where I can love and be loved, but I want to grow in this area. Would you help me? That's the person moving away from self-sufficiency to godly transformation. The person moving away from self-pity and blaming talks like this as he discovers grace. I see now that others need true friends as I do, and I would like to try to be one without thinking about myself so much and my needs. May I be your friend? When those two kinds of people moving away from the extremes of self-sufficiency and self-pity and away from boasting and blaming 
begin to get close to each other, beautiful things happen in life and in a church. So what does a pastor say to a congregation with people all over that continuum downtown and here? And here's my answer. I will try to lift up the Bible's message about life together in Jesus and the early mission and the early church in the hopes that it will happen as you see it. As you see it, you'll just find yourself drawn into it and God will make it happen in your life. And then secondly, I will look briefly at our text and ask, what's all that got to do with God? What is horizontal connectedness and love have to do with God? So let's take those just one at a time. First, the prominence of life together in the New Testament. And let's start with Jesus. I love to think about Jesus. I love to look at the way Jesus lived. And picture this. Jesus had his crowds, right? Sometimes into the thousands. And he fed the the crowd of, of bread. So there were 5,000 men. So sometimes he had his, his crowds of thousands. And he didn't know them all. And so he chose 72, it says in Luke, 6, in Luke 10, 1. He chose 72 people. Huh. And you can't know 72 very well. So he chose 12 to be with him. It says those very words in Mark 3.14. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. But you can't know 12 the same way you can know three. And so he had his three. Peter, James, John. Isn't it amazing that he only took Peter, James, and John into the house where he raised the little girl, the centurion's daughter, from the dead? He only took Peter, James, and John up onto the Mount of Transfiguration where he talked with Moses and Elijah. He only took Peter, James, and John further out into the Garden of Gethsemane and left the other eight back there. And when he sweat drops of blood, he wanted these three nearby. Isn't that amazing that he would risk the accusation of favoritism because he had that kind of relationship with Peter, James, and John? And you can't know three the way you can know one. And he had his one. Five times in the Gospel of John, John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The one who lay on his shoulder at the Last Supper. The one who, from the cross... Heard Jesus say, she's your mother, he's your son. That's amazing to me. He had his crowds, he had his 70, he had his 12, he had his three, and he had his one. Knowing people at all levels of Distance and intimacy is really important because Jesus modeled it for us. And then, is it surprising that when he sent out the 72, 
he sent them out two by two. Is that surprising? (laughs) Chapter 10, verse 1 of Luke. The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town. Not one by one, but two by two. So now you, you come from Jesus and how he modeled for us these kinds of relationships and you move into the early church missionary spreading. And what do you find? Here they are in Antioch, five of them, worshiping and fasting. And the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. Not Set apart Saul, and he'll go that way, and set apart Barnabas, and he'll go that way, but set aside these two going that way. That's the way God designed it, and Paul would not forsake that principle all the way through his missionary life. Every place, in fact, that he planted a church with Barnabas on the first missionary journey, it says he appointed elders in every church. Not one, but plural elders in every church. Not one pastor, but several elder slash pastor in every church. And when the team broke up, they couldn't get together on John Mark. Remember what happened? John Mark forsook the mission. He bailed on them, made Paul very angry. And when they went back... Barnabas, being the son of encouragement that he is, said, give him another chance. Let's take him on the second journey. And Paul said, no way. Anybody who has forsaken, I'm not taking him on the second journey. The stakes are too high. He didn't prove himself. I'll find somebody else. And they couldn't agree. The small group fell apart. Ever had a small group fall apart on you? Of course they fall apart. And you know what they did? They didn't go away and pout, moan, blame, and boast. Barnabas said, well, I'm going to take him. We'll retrace our steps that way. And Paul said, all right, honest disagreement. I'll choose Silas, and we'll go up this way. And you know what the church did? It blessed them. Blessed them. And that's exactly what we'll do when one of your small groups falls apart and you have to form a new one next fall or this December. If you say these people together, it didn't work. We couldn't agree on time or we couldn't agree on text or we couldn't agree on how to pray or we couldn't agree. Well, that's a failure. Yeah, right. Big deal. We fail. That's why it says they commended them to the grace of the Lord. Acts 15, 39. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas, departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. What else could they commend them to? These rascals couldn't agree. If grace didn't reign in the church, we'd all just give up and go our separate ways. The only possible way, there's forgiveness, there's trying it again, there's pulling back. So if you have trouble in a relationship and it just won't work at the level you'd like it to be, say the one, the three, or the twelve, chalk it up, it's going to have to be in the seventy, and you probably won't see them as often as you might have liked. That's life. We're not perfect. We take grace. Things fail, break up, fall down, fall apart, and we Press on. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but have faith and preserve 
our souls. Do you remember the time in Berea where Paul and Silas and Timothy were under attack from those who had come down from the synagogue in Thessalonica and they quickly smuggled Paul out of town, put him on a boat and took him to Athens and left Silas and Timothy to do the work thinking they weren't the targets. And in Athens, when they got there, Paul said, those who conducted Paul about him brought him as far as Athens and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. In other words, Paul said, I may have been forced out of that town on my own and be found in Athens here by myself, but it will not be for long. Get those guys down here as soon as you can. We have a work to do together. So when the one time happened that we know of in the Bible where Paul did have to go off by himself, he didn't like it. And he said, fix it quick. Get those guys on a boat and down here as soon as they can. He chose Silas to go with him instead of Barnabas. And one of the pictures I love more than all the others that I can think of is the picture in Philippi. Remember what happened with him and Silas? They're trying to preach the gospel. This, this girl keeps uh, giving demonic prophesyings over them, making herself a nuisance. And so they cast a demon out of her, and that gets them in big trouble with the authorities. They beat them with rods, throw them in prison, and it's midnight, and they are in stocks on their feet. And what are they doing? Singing. Acts 16.25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Not just one, singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I love this picture. A duet at midnight in prison. A deadly, serious duet. Silas, we've been beaten. We don't know if they're going to come chop off our heads tomorrow. We don't know if they'll sit us here and let us starve. How about we sing? And Silas says, that's what I expected you to say. That's why I'm with you. What are we going to sing? Well, let's sing that hymn, you know, let your minds be conformed to Jesus because, you know, like, well, let's, let's do that one. And they start singing. And God shakes the whole earth. I love friendship. Now, I have to admit, I'll just be real honest with you. I'm biased towards mission-oriented friendship, ministry-oriented friendship as opposed to tea-sipping at the kitchen table, friendship. To which you should probably respond, what's wrong with sipping tea with a friend at the kitchen table, for goodness sakes? And the answer is nothing, nothing. Unless three weeks go by, you're still sipping, and four weeks go by, and you're still sipping, and four months go by, and you're still sipping and talking about the kids. And four years go by, and you're still sipping. Then 
You don't have a Christ-exalting relationship. You have a T-exalting relationship. I am biased towards friendships, relationships of women to women, women to men, men to women, becoming mission-minded, ministry-oriented. I think that's why we're on planet Earth. I think every marriage, every parent-child relation, every partnership in business, every small group, every two women over a breakfast table, every two men at Dunn Brothers, is about God and His glory and His changing our lives into being better moms. Better neighborhood workers, better volunteers, better dreamers, better sages for the young women. It's not about tea. So I, I close uh, the parenthesis on my bias. I really want this church to have profound, deep, loving, sacrificial, soul-satisfying friendships. I really do because they are so biblical and I enjoy them so much, but it is all about making God look good in the family, in the neighborhood, in the church, and among the nations and at the business. Isn't it also remarkable that Paul found Timothy in Lystra and he said to his mom and his grandmother, can I have him? Give him to me. He takes him. I don't think he probably ever went back. He may have visited. He winds up being a pastor in Ephesus. But Paul said, can I have him? And he took him. He wanted him. He saw something in him and he wanted him and he got him and he took him on his mission. And did you know that of the 13 letters that Paul wrote, six of them are signed off, Paul and Timothy. Six times out of 13 letters, he wanted to say, now I wrote the letter, everybody knows that, but I want to send it from the team. I want you to receive this and know there's a team here, and we're one in this letter that we send to you. And there are so many such evidences. So now we've seen two glimpses. We've seen Jesus and his relationships. We've seen the early camaraderie of the Christian mission. And now thirdly, I look at the prominence of relationships that Jesus put in motion and the apostles pursued. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. And then they did it. Listen to these statements. These are all quotations from the letters of the New Testament. We are individually members one of another. One. Two. Love one another brotherly with brotherly affection. Three. Outdo one another in showing honor. Four. Pursue what makes for upbuilding of one another. Five. Instruct one another. Six. Have the same care for one another. Seven, through love, serve one another. Eight, bear one another's burdens. Nine, endure one another. Ten, be kind to one another. Eleven, 
submit to one another. Twelve, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Thirteen, do not lie to one another. Fourteen, encourage one another. And fifteen, always seek to do good to one another. That's all the Apostle Paul. Now here comes Hebrews. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Then comes James. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. Don't grumble against one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Then comes Peter. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility to one another. And so on it goes. Isn't that amazing? Now, what's obvious to me from Jesus' relationships, the crowds, the 70, the 12, the 3, the 1, and all the rugged camaraderie of the early Christian mission of Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas and Paul and Timothy and Barnabas and John, all those teams and partnerships and friendships, and all these one another, love one another and pray for one another and heal one another and exhort one another and instruct one another and be kind to one another, all those things. What all of that says is, this is really important in a church like ours, about to grow beyond its present 2,700 folks to 3,000 folks and beyond, with more campuses and churches and congregations and diversity. This is really important that we invest energy in this. There's a lot of people who work real hard just to do what we can do, and we can't make it happen. I can preach on it. I can pray my heart out over it. I can try to model it in some of the staff relationships that I have and the camaraderie we enjoy there and the hours we spend in prayer together and when we stick for each other, like when one of my sons is going haywire, tears flow on that staff for me. But we can't make it happen. God can make it happen and we can put it out there and pray that he will be touching you to pursue small groups. So let me close by simply going to our text with this second and last question. What's it all got to do with God? All this horizontal networking and relationships and friendships and in each other's lives. What has it got to do with God? And John gives us an answer. But before I give you John's answer, let me read you Paul's answer. I want you to see that John's not alone. Here's Romans fifteen five. To seven, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. Let's just stop right there and hear what he just said. May the God of endurance grant you to live in harmony. Where does harmony come from? Where does life together come from? Where does thinking the same and feeling the same and building each other up come from? It comes from God. May the God... Grant you to live that way. May God grant you. So my prayer all last night, all this morning, as I'm preaching, oh, Lord God, you do what I am describing. You do it in the lives of these people. I'll keep reading. 
that same Romans 15, 5 passage. In accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify God and Father of Jesus Christ. There it is. All of our togetherness is for the glory of God. He says it one more time. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you for the glory of God. If you say, why is it important that we do these kinds of relationships, that we get into small groups, that we have friends, that we get into each other's lives and know each other's problems and bear each other's burdens and be there for each other. Why is that important? It's important finally because God's glory is important supremely. God has ordained to make himself look good on the loving relationships of his people. Now look at 1 John. Chapter 3, verse 10. This, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, John lay on Jesus' shoulder at the Last Supper and knew him better than anybody. And he said that. That's a hard word. If we do not love our brother, we are not born of God. Loving people, loving the brotherhood, being willing to lay down your life to bring another into fuller and deeper enjoyment of God is the evidence that we are born of God. John, 1 John 3.10. Here it is in 1 John 4.7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So there it is again. This is important because it's the outworking and the evidence and the confirmation that we know him and are born by him into his children like chips off the old block of love. Look at it in 1 John 4.12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another God abides among us. God abides in us. What's the link between the invisibility of God and loving one another? I'll read it again. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. You get the connection? Nobody's ever seen God. You want God to show up and be manifest? Love each other. And God is abiding in that love in such a way that he will be perfected and manifested for others to see. And by this will men know that you're disciples of Jesus and that God is in your midst. Last verse. Same chapter. 1 John 4, verse 16. Middle of the verse. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. We are branches. And he's a vine. 
When a branch is grafted by grace and faith into a vine, it abides there, and the sap that flows and bears fruit is love, which is why the first fruit of the Holy Spirit is called love. The Spirit flows, He flows as love, and love grows, and now we know we're born of God. This is serious, really serious. My aim this morning has simply been to lift up the importance and the prominence of love and relationships for Jesus. Crowd 70, 12, 3, 1. The cruciality of camaraderie and friendship in the early mission. Sent them out two by two. Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and John, Paul and Silas, Timothy and Paul, and the whole team. And all these amazing, beautiful descriptions of what the one another life together would look like if we followed the pattern of Jesus. And then, lastly, all I did was say, God has to do with it in that he's the source of it. May the God of encouragement and Endurance grants you to live that way, and he's the goal of it. With one voice, we glorify God, and this is all the evidence that we know him and that we've been born again by him. This is huge. The great commandment is love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I close with this. Isn't it just like God that he would design the church and grace and salvation and history in such a way that we get the joy of loving and being loved And he gets the glory as the source and goal of it all. It's just the way God is. We get the joy. He gets the glory. And so my closing exhortation is that when we're done here and we sing this beautiful servant song to one another, offering ourselves as servants to each other and and asking that we be allowed to be servants to one another and take this book and go to the table and say, now tell me about this and where does that happen and what does it mean to be in a small group when you go out there and when you downtown go out. When all of that is happening, let's move from the extreme of self-sufficiency and pride, I don't have relationships and I don't need any, and self-pitying and blaming, I need lots of relationships and you owe me one and it's your fault if I don't have any. Let's move away from those extremes toward, I now see that you need a friend, and I'm not used to this, but I would like to be one, and I'm not used to looking for or giving love, but I would like to try. Would you help me? And let's meet each other there. Father, I pray for students. I pray for married older people and single older people. I pray for children, teenagers. I pray for those old who've never been in any kind of 
small group where they shared their needs and prayed and studied the Bible together and got a vision for ministry as a group, cared for one another in crisis. Lord, I pray for all kinds of people downtown and here that we would find each other. Some of us have to be content with knowing each other as faces in a big room. Some have learned a name in the 70. Some have formed a small group with the 12. Some have discovered the preciousness of the three. And some have one really, really precious friend. Lord, expand the capacities of our love, I pray at Bethlehem. In Jesus' name, amen.